Good morning. It's a pleasure to join you in your home again. We continue to gather together even while separate because we believe that we as God's people sent on the mission of making disciples need to continually be encouraged, equipped, and exhorted in the scriptures and in the gospel so that we can continue to live on the mission of Jesus. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. So I invite you to open up your Bible as we do that. I'm sure you were like me in that when you were a child, you said something that you didn't really understand what you were saying that caused a pretty significant laugh for your parents. I grew up here in Federal Way behind Wild Waves, and we would regularly pass that Costco on Enchanted Parkway. I remember when that Popeyes was going in and I was so excited one day as we were driving by it because I remember seeing this sign. I was like, mom, mom, look, it's about to open. It's so exciting. And my mom looks at me like, why? Why do you think that they're about to open? And I was like, mom, look at that sign. It says now hurrying. I had misread it saying now hiring and to this day, I still go by Popeyes and think that they're hurrying to open up. Well, even as kids, we probably said some funny things, but we also, if you're like me, had a saying that you would say when you were just angry, when you had your go-to expression of what you would say to ensure that somebody else know you were raging, you were fired up, and you were just ready to let them have it. So for me, man, when I was a kid, I'd breathe, get all worked up, look at them, and I'd say, you are, you're a push face. You're a push face. That was my expression of Anger. Now, anger in and of itself, if you've been in Christian circles, probably has a mixed bag of an understanding. You, this passage today is one of those passages that understands and people use it to understand anger, what I would say, in a wrong way. You could be like many of us that have been taught that anger is actually bad. You're not supposed to feel anger. The anger is actually, some would say, part of your sinful nature. And so it needs to be suppressed. It needs to be pushed down so that you can continue to live a holy and righteous life. To do away with anger, get away from it as far as possible because it's not a right thing. But what does Jesus have to say about anger? What is he addressing in this passage? And in that anger, what happens when that anger is fueling a relationship between two parties? What is the call of the disciples of Jesus, both in this passage and for all time, on what he expects of us when it comes to two parties that are unreconciled to one another. Matthew in verses 21 through 27 show that Jesus is teaching us that he is calling his disciples to a life of radical reconciliation. 
the radical pursuit of reconciling parties as an expression of our understanding of the gospel. So let's go ahead and start by reading Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already been portrayed as the better Moses. He's gone up on a mountain to teach his disciples and give them a new law. Right before this passage, Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so right out of that, Jesus now goes and gives six different examples of how Jesus is not going to uh, abolish the law, but what he's doing, he's going to pull back the curtain. And he doesn't just say, stop doing these bad things. What Jesus is doing, he's re-clarifying the true intention and heartbeat of God in the law and, and addresses it at that place. It's not just these actions that Jesus is addressing. He's going after the intentions of the heart. And the first example of the six that he gives is what we're addressing today. And that is the teaching about anger and reconciliation. So we see in verse 22, this is where a lot of people get confused. It says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What's the law that Jesus is addressing here? In verse 21, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. You can imagine being one of the listeners and being like, yep, Jesus is right on track. Let's keep on not murdering people. That's thumbs up. But Jesus goes to next level. He shows us the intention. And in doing so, he addresses the idea of anger. Now, if we read this in just the English, it's the idea of do not be angry with your brother or you'll be liable to judgment. Well, we could start to think that, oh, if I'm angry, I'm, I'm, I must be going to hell. I, I need to address that. But the term angry here isn't necessarily speaking about the emotion. It's actually talking about a continual state and posture of the heart that holds grudges. He isn't saying this emotion that you have is bad. He's saying when that emotion leads you to holding a grudge, which will then lead you to more as he'll about to express, he's saying that's the problem. 
So let's take a step back and understand what is anger? What is the emotion of anger? First, the emotion of anger is part of how we bear God's image. All humans are image bearers of God. They're created by God to reflect him, that they show each other and the whole world what God is like. And so as an image bearer of God, we have to recognize that anger is part of our bearing God's image. We can look, and there's many examples in the scriptures of God himself getting angry. Even in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is angered by the injustice that takes place in his temple and he that passionately addresses it by dealing with what is wrong. So this is a part of how we reflect God. Secondly, anger is not moral. It's neither right nor wrong. It just is. What we do with this emotion, just like what we do with all emotions, it shows us uh, what is right and wrong. It is what is right and wrong. But the the emotion itself is not um, right nor wrong nor sinful. That's because three, like all emotions, anger is a diagnostic tool. Uh, Jeff Schulte says it this way, at its most rudimentary level, anger tells us when something is wrong and when we need something. It's like the check engine light on a dashboard of a car that signals that we need to pay attention because something under the hood is not okay. So if you look at your dashboard, you see the check engine light on, you likely are going to either go to a shop or find a friend that knows how to deal with cars. It's an indicator that something else is happening. In the same way, anger is an indicator. It's also an invitation to uh, the next part of it. But let's pause for a second. It's, It's an indicator. So it's not right or wrong. It just shows us that something else is happening. It may be that we're needing something, as Jeff Schulte say. It may be that we're so passionate about something, that we're convicted, that we're called to something, that that emotion is being fueled in that way. So it's just an indicator that something else is happening. Then uh, the last thing that we need to understand about anger is anger is a crossroads to a decision. It's an invitation to a decision. If it's not wrong in and of itself, it's a way we reflect God's image. It um, is an indicator that something else is going on. It then brings us to a moment of decision. Now, we can either use that anger in the way Jesus did and use it rightly or there's a decision that can be made in that moment that brings us on the path that Jesus is addressing. And this crossroad is what Jesus is going after. It's after you've made the decision, after what's going on in your heart fuels you to not doing it in the way of Jesus, but doing it in the way of your flesh. That is what Jesus is addressing in this passage. So what happens when you take the crossroad that leads you to death? Well, Jesus gives us a little bit of this progression and he lays it out that all of these things are liable to judgment. What are they? 
He says, don't, don't be angry, which is don't hold a grudge. Don't continually um, hold anger at your heart over against somebody. Because what's the next part of it? Um, after you um, are angry, then it says whoever insults his brother will be liable. This insult is the term raka. It literally is uh, demeaning of somebody's mental capacities. And after that, what's the next step in this? Jesus says the last part of verse 21, whoever says you fool. So it goes from holding a grudge to attacking the mental capacity to this part is attacking the character and heart of a person. This is what one commentator says. Raka, which is the first part, expresses contempt for a man's head, saying, you stupid. Moros expresses contempt for his heart and character. You scoundrel. And both of those, Jesus is saying, no, that's, that's taking the cross road of, road of anger and taking to the path that ultimately leads to murder. And that's what Jesus is addressing. In our day and age, you may not think that this is uh, very common, but let me just give you one example of how this is extremely common, not just in normal life, but especially in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's takes place on social media. If you go online, you go to Twitter, you go to Facebook, it's so common to see this type of language and to see this type of behavior attacking somebody's mental and and heart capacity. It's so common and it's even common amongst those that are Christians. It's amazing. I see friends of mine that I know and I see them online and I'm like, wait a second. What you would never say that to somebody in person. Why do we think that it's okay to say that online? And so I think Jesus, an implication of what Jesus is teaching is in this. He's saying, no. That's not the way of the kingdom of God. You don't attack somebody's mental capacity. You don't hold grudges. You don't go after somebody's character. That's not the way in which the kingdom is to be had. Not in a way that continues to separate relationships. And what Jesus goes on to say and to give us further implications are what are we to do when those relationships are at odds? And this is a posture of radical pursuit of reconciliation. What's the consequences of all three of these? Judgment. This is a preposterous thing that Jesus is teaching to call somebody a fool to demean somebody's mental capacities is just as wrong as murder in the eyes of Jesus. He's not lowering the bar. He's not abolishing the law. He's fulfilling it. He's showing us its true intentions. 
Now, next week, we're going to talk more about what that judgment looks like, specifically that part that says hell of fire or Gehenna, that understanding for the hearers and for us of eternal judgment. And so what Jesus is saying, no, don't go down that path. I want you to pursue radical reconciliation. So what I want you to do is before we talk about the implications of reconciliation and the examples that Jesus gives in the final four verses of this, I want to give you a few minutes to talk about and discuss some questions that you'll see on a screen. In a few minutes, you'll all invite you back in after you allow every person to have that conversation. And then we'll continue the teaching and close out the time together. I'm going to invite you back together And we're going to finish our time looking at two stories that Jesus uses to unpack the truth that he's teaching us. Now remember, this is not about the emotion of anger. That's not what Jesus is addressing. He's addressing those that are holding grudges against other people over an extended period of time. So what does Jesus say and what are the implications of us and for us if we follow in this footsteps. And I think there's three that we're going to draw out from these two stories. Now, the first story is a story of somebody who's at the temple offering a sacrifice, remembers that somebody has something against them, and Jesus instructs them to go and pursue reconciliation with that person. The second story is somebody who's on their way to court and their job is to pursue reconciling with that person before they get to the judge because they don't want to have to deal with the long-term ramifications. The, the first story, I think, has two particular points that I want to draw out. Now, now, for us, when we read this story, we don't understand and see the radical nature of what Jesus is calling us to. So let me unpack that for a second. This is somebody in this story that has come to Jerusalem to the temple. That would have been the temple that's in their mind. There was no other temples in their cities. They would have had gone to Jerusalem from wherever they are in Israel to present their regular sacrifices of forgiveness of their sins. This trip would have taken sometimes days and days for that person to prepare, to make the journey, and then to offer a sacrifice. And so what Jesus is saying is if you're in the middle of doing the very thing that Jesus and the scriptures ask you to do, you're offering a sacrifice, you're being obedient to the law, but you remember somebody has something against you. You leave the sacrifice and you go back to the place that you had come. You go all the way journeying back to your hometown or wherever it is that you need to pursue reconciliation with that person. I mean, this shows us the first thing that this is the extent to which Jesus um, is calling reconciliation. It is very far reaching. The extent is far reaching. It's not just, oh, do your sacrifice and then go back. No, it's go all the way back. Even if it takes days, if it takes weeks to finish this reconciliation with this other person, Jesus is saying, that's what I want you to do. I want you to be the person that goes to whatever lengths is necessary to reconcile with the person who needs it. And then the second part, I think, is even more preposterous in our minds. 
When we think of reconciliation, we tend to think that if I have something against somebody else, it's I need to get something off my chest. Uh, many times in the church, we talk about speaking the truth in love, and I just need to get something off my chest because something's bothering me. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Look at the second piece that he's talking about who is the pursuer. If, and notice, if you remember, verse 23, that your brother has something against you. It's not about you holding on a grudge only. It's not about you needing to get something off your chest. If you remember somebody else in, that you are in relationship with has something against you, Jesus is saying of his disciples who are within his kingdom, it is your job to pursue them, so to give them an opportunity and provide space for them so that they can share their heart with you. That we have to have enough fortitude within in our own heart to be able to make people disagree with us and voice things, we have to make it easy for them to do that. So we are to be the pursuers of that. That's the type of reconciliation that Jesus is expecting. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when you hear this bar, you're like, wow, that's a high, high bar. And you can start thinking of all the different relationships that this could impact. And this tends to impact those relationships that you're closest with. I mean, think of your spouse if you're married or your family if you're not. When I uh, do marriage counseling now or premarital counseling or I see young people uh, about to get married, my heart has changed a little bit on that over the last couple years. I'm so excited for them. It's such an amazing thing to see two people become one. But now after over a dozen years of marriage, I now know that this is going to be the person that you're going to actually have to forgive and ask for forgiveness the most. I mean, when you're in that close of relationship and you as a sinful person, interact with another sinful person, there's a need for regular times of reconciliation, to, to apologize, to say, hey, did I do something wrong there? To be the one who is pursuing. It may be extend beyond your family. I mean, if you're in a missional community and you have not yet experienced this yet, I'm just going to tell you right now, you will. When you're living in relationship as a family of servant missionaries regularly with one, other, with one another, you are going to accidentally and hopefully not purposefully rub somebody the wrong way. You're going to offend somebody. You're going to be hurt by somebody else. And so what Jesus is doing and, and he's setting the bar of what it means to be those that are radically pursuing reconciliation with one another. So if somebody has somebody, something against you, whether it's your family, your, your marriage, whether it's in your missional community, somebody in the church or somebody beyond that in your workplace, wherever it may be, what Jesus is encouraging us to do is to be pursuing whatever extent is necessary, radical reconciliation. And the third part, we find this in the last story, is on what timing is that supposed to be? We see this. In verse 25, says, come to terms when? 
eventually it's not that big of a deal. We can just go ahead and let this go for a while. Or my grudge isn't that bad. So I'm just going to go ahead and let that just be because I don't want to offend them anymore. I don't want to make it any harder. I don't want to have that difficult conversation with somebody. No, no, no. What does Jesus instruct them to do? As you're on your way, it says to come to terms quickly. This isn't something to linger. Grudges aren't something to be taken lightly. Jesus is encouraging his disciples that are going to be within his kingdom to not only pursue reconciliation, to not only be, do it in a far-reaching, um, do-whatever-you-can posture, but to do it as quickly as possible. This is what I think Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul means when he says, don't go to sleep on your anger. It's not necessarily that emotion. It's no, no, don't let the grudge go on any longer than it needs to. Do what you can to finish it and, and to bring it to reconciliation right now. So this is a high bar that I think actually implicates all of us. This is something that all of us have done. This is something that all of us have run into. We have been offended, and because of our sinful nature, we have likely offended other people. So we're all guilty of this. I mean, as we get going in these six different examples, at the end of it, in verse 48 of this section, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You have to do this perfectly. You have to live up to this high standard. That's the expectation of what it means to be in the kingdom of God and in the relationship with a holy God. I and you cannot live up to that. So on what grounds do we have that we can live into this radical reconciliation, that we can be pursuers, that we can go after somebody who's offended by us? Well, this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in. I mean, think of the extent of what Jesus went to pursue you and my in our rebellion against God. I mean, he left the throne of heaven. He took on the form of a baby. He took on human flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived in relative obscurity, in poverty and poorness for the first year, for all of his life. He grew up and he was all, doing all of that, living perfectly, perfectly living in submission to God and all of his laws. He was doing that because he was pursuing reconciliation with you and me. He knew that we were his enemies because of our sin, but in his love he pursued. In his grace he knew we couldn't live up to the standard of perfection. He knew that it was up to him, that he needed to keep both sides of the agreement between us and him. So what did he do? He took it on himself. He became the pursuer. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The, uh, he came to seek and to save the lost. He took it on himself. He provided the space where we can be reconciled to the Father. And that was on the cross when he paid the penalty and when he rose again victorious over all of sin, Satan, and death. And now that you and I have the Spirit of God, if we placed our faith in Jesus, we now have the ability to walk in the same strength and in the same way that Jesus did as one who pursued radical reconciliation. 
If I am not in Christ, I don't have the power or even sometimes the desire to seek this type of reconciliation. This comes from being united and grounded in our identity in Christ. It's recognizing what Jesus has done for me, how he has pursued me, how he has graciously extended love to me. And if I truly understand the depths to which Jesus did that, it, it fuels me to go to my spouse, to go to my coworker, to go to that person in my missional community, whatever it may be, and seek reconciliation. That's the call of the gospel. That's the reason why we do that. And so if you are somebody watching and listening that does not yet profess faith, the call to you first is not to just go and start doing all this work so that you can be perfect. It's to recognize that you can't live up to the standard. And yet Jesus has come to die for your sin. He rose physically from the dead that we celebrated on Easter just a few weeks ago so that you can walk in new life. You can be in his kingdom, which brings you human flourishing. And so the invitation for you is for you to say, yeah, I place my faith that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He looked perfectly in submission to the God showing me what it meant to be fully God and fully man. And he rose again. And one day he's going to come back and renew and restore all of creation. That's the call for us. If you have placed your faith this is an opportunity for you to further walk out what you believe Jesus has done for you. So as I invite you to the table, as you go to remember the body of Christ broken for you, his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins, as you go to remember that, before you do so, I, I ask that you take a moment and, and ask the Spirit, ask God to give you insight. Is there anybody that I need to pursue reconciliation with? Is there a brother or a sister that has something against me? Do I need to, in the days ahead, whatever I need to do, do I need to be about pursuing that? And remember, church, it is by our love for one another that the people that don't yet know Jesus will know we are his disciples. This is an expression of that love. And it's an expression of the love that we know we have because of what Jesus has done for us. So let me pray for us, and then I'll invite you to the table. Father, thank you that while we were yet sinners, you sent Jesus, that he pursued us, that he came after us, that he came to seek and save the lost, and the extent of which, Jesus, you took to take on my sin and forgive us of our debts. That your love, your grace, knowing that we can't live up to it, knowing that we would not live perfectly, but your standard of perfection did not change. You did it on our place. You took our brokenness and gave us your wholeness. You took our sin and gave us holiness. And so Jesus, that fuels our desire and pursuit of reconciliation. 
So I pray for all of us that this is a moment right now that we can place our faith in you anew, that we can repent of not doing what you've called us to and turn to you as the God who loves us, who has graciously paid the penalty for us and now empowers us to pursue reconciliation as an extension of what we believe about you. So as we go to the table, we thank you that you did this on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.